Hello, welcome to ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Ashlyn Asiri, and today we are here with Dr. Galen Garrett to discuss professional voice. Dr. Garrett, thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me, Ashley. Before we start with the typical presentations, could you speak to some of the characteristics of this patient population and some of the unique pressures that they face? So being here in Nashville, of course, uh, we think of country music. Um, Nashville is Music City, USA, but but actually we have all kinds of uh, musicians here. We have what you would consider professional performers, the names that you might recognize, but we also have symphony, uh, symphony chorus members. Uh, we have gospel, rap, I mean, you name it. Uh, we have all of these these folks here. As far as the kinds of management decisions that you have to make, when you work with professional singers and those who use their voice for their work on a daily basis, are there specific issues that come across, such as their schedules, that can be challenging to work around? Definitely schedules are a, are a major problem. And, you know, interestingly, in for some of these people, the professional voice users, again, we think of their main career being their singing voice. Uh, but a lot of these people also have side jobs, and these side jobs are where they might even make more of their money. Now, the big names, obviously, they, they don't do that, but some of these people who are early in their career, they might work at a bar or they might work you know, at a restaurant using their speaking voice. So the pressures of you know, trying to make money but also save their voice for their true love and their true passion, which is their singing, is definitely uh, an issue for them. So what are some of the most common reasons that professional singers present to your clinic? Um, the main reason, obviously, is them noticing a difference in their voice. And, you know, when I, when I see a patient for the first time, uh, I, I always ask them, you know, what is different about their voice? Because generally, once you walk in the room, you're hearing their voice quality, and you're already starting to make some some assessments in your own mind about how they sound. But that what you hear and and think might be abnormal is not for them sometimes. So I ask them what is different about their voice, and you know what is it that they're hoping that we can help them with. So that's the number one thing, and of course we want them to quantify and qualify what is different, you know, whether it's the sound, whether it's the range, the pitch, um, fatigue, pain. There are lots of different things uh, that, uh, you know, that is troubling for them. So you mentioned some of these already, but what are some of the other specific questions that you ask related to vocal health to help assess the risk factors that the patients you see have? So I want to know, you know, of course, with the actual symptom that, that they're presenting with, I want them to further characterize that. You know, how long has it been going on? Are we talking about an acute problem versus a chronic problem? Uh, do they have underlying chronic problems and then have an acute exacerbation? Uh, I, so, so a lot of different things that, you know, we could go into great detail about, uh, about the voice itself. But other than that, I also want to know, you know, what are their voice demands? Are they, are they using the voice more than they have been, uh, have used in the past? For the new artists and the new, um, you know, people who have just recently signed with a label, you know, I'm asking them, are they, are they uh, being asked to do more than they've done in the past? Are they performing more? How many days a week are they performing? We have a lot of songwriters here in Nashville. So, you know, the songwriters don't always think of their songwriting as part of their singing time. And so you want to know, are they also spending time songwriting? Because that can be an additional stress. I ask about the activities apart from their singing. Are, do they work out? If they're working out, do they do aerobic activity? Or do they, are they doing weightlifting, different types of exercising that can put uh, strain on muscles? And all the other typical things that you would ask in a routine, you know, ear, nose, and throat uh, presentation, that, you know, allergies, reflux, how much water are they drinking, caffeine, etc. Since there doesn't seem to be a perfect way to objectively evaluate dysphonia, what is the best way, in your opinion? 
So I, I think that you have to look at quality of life measures, uh, patient reported outcome measures, et cetera. And there are various ones out there. None of them are perfect, but I think the important thing is to be consistent. You know, there are different scales, you know, the GRBAS scale, uh, people pronounce that various ways, you know, the Cape V scale, and of course the voice handicap index and its and its variations. There, there's actually a short form, which is a VHI-10, and there's actually a singing VHI, uh, which you can use uh, for this particular population. But whatever one you use, be consistent. And I know a lot of different voice clinics have their own measures that they use. So what are some of the other perceptual voice abnormalities that we should be familiar with? So, you know, again, the first things that, that, that I typically think about are, you know, roughness, strain. Uh, we see a ton of, you know, muscle tension dysphonia patients, so a vocal fry, you know, where they're talking down in this kind of voice. Some of uh, our professional voice users, you, know, you might hear pitch abnormalities. And, you know, you think about diplophonia, where, where they're actually producing more than one frequency of vibration at the same time. And it's not diplophonia the entire time. You know, some people might call it a, a pitch break every now and then. Uh, a lot of the singers will also complain about the transition in their voice, going from their chest voice to their head voice. You know, the, a classically trained singer would describe that as their passaggio. And, you know, that can be due to a number of different things, uh, but, but those are some of the type of things. Um, you know, you can also listen for changes in breathing, you know, strider, uh, where it's a, and we typically hear more inspiratory, which is what I just demonstrated. Uh, probably not so much in this, in this patient population. Um, you know, other things in just in general, tremor, where the voice is up and down like this, where it's very rhythmic, as opposed to someone who has a dystonia, such as, you know, adductor spasmodic dysphonia, where they ache on voiced sounds. You know, Adam eats a apples and eggs. Uh, where there's a break, but it's not necessarily consistent. It's more depending on what sound they're producing. So there's a lot of perceptual work that you can glean just from your initial interview with the patient before you even look at the larynx. Great. So after we get a little bit of history, of course, the next step is a head and neck exam. What specifically are you looking for in these patients? So I generally do, again, consistency is a very good thing to do to do because otherwise you tend to focus on what you think is going to be abnormal. And I think that's true for any of the patients that we see in otolaryngology. Um, but, you know, I do a routine head and neck exam. Um, so, you know, the first part of my career, I was doing a lot of general otolaryngology. So, you know, I, I think that makes me, um, uh, in my opinion, a better laryngologist. Uh, because, you know, anything going on in the nose or the nasopharynx um, can, can affect what's going on in, in, the, in the larynx area. So um, I'm looking for mucous membrane quality. You know, is it dry? Is the mucus itself thick and sticky and gooey, uh, which might imply, you know, dehydration from whatever reason? Uh, you know, we're looking at um, the, the neck is a very focused exam for us. Uh, specifically, I'm looking for pain on palpation on the anterior neck. We're look, palpating the strap muscles. We're palpating the thyrohyoid space, uh, palpating the, the thyroid cartilage itself. Um, because, you know, most people are not that tender in those areas. And you can try it on yourself to test it. Uh, but someone who, who engages those extra laryngeal muscles will be markedly tender when you palpate there. And uh, so that's a kind of a dead giveaway for either, you know, primary or secondary muscle tension. So after your full head and neck exam, what's your next step in the workup? So obviously at some point we want to actually look at the larynx. Um, so, you know, looking at the larynx, there you know, three standard ways of doing that. Um, I think one, you know, the first first ways with a with a dental mirror. That's a lost art, and I'll be the first to admit that 
it, it's it's a skill that I never really uh, honed in. But um, for those who do that, uh, you know, there's no question that a mirror is going to give you the the closest natural color, um, the you know the the least amount of distortion. So you know, if you're good with a with a, a dental mirror and headlight or head mirror, you know that that's the way to do it. Uh, we then have the option of doing flexible transnasal laryngoscopy, or we have transoral rigid endoscopy with angled telescopes, um, typically a 70-degree or a 90-degree 90, 90 scope. And, and depending on what you're looking for, there are patient-specific factors, and, and there are what you potentially might think are diagnosis-consistent factors that um, you know, would dictate, am I going to use transnasal? Or am I going to use transoral? So what is stroboscopy, and how is this different than a normal nasopharyngeal fiber optic examination? Yeah, and I think that's a great question, because I think that th- those terms are frequently used interchangeably in error. Um, you know, flexible laryngoscopy or rigid laryngoscopy is just using a scope to look at the larynx, and it's us- usually using just standard light whether it be halogen light, LED light, you know, natural light. Uh, when you add stroboscopy, stroboscopy is really only uh, determining how you, know, how you apply the light uh, to, to your exam. And the stroboscopic light, which synchronizes to your voice frequency, uh, it's actually slightly offset um, from your voice frequency, but it allows for a perceptual slow motion view of vocal fold vibration. And so that, I mean, that is really the only thing that stroboscopy adds. So if you're concerned about vocal fold anatomy and vocal fold, you know, mucosal wave characteristics, you need to do stroboscopy. But otherwise, you know, laryngo- and, and that, by the way, can be done with either a flexible scope or a rigid scope. Um, so, yeah, just make sure that, that, you know, you know the differences between those two. When do you prefer to use a rigid versus a flexible scope exam? So, in my opinion, uh, the rigid exams, given the current technology, the rigid exams, I think, give the best optical view of the vocal folds themselves. Um, they are typically bigger scopes from a diameter standpoint, which allows them to take in more light. Uh, even with the distal chip camera scopes that are available for the flexible laryngoscopes, uh, at least in my opinion, and you know people can can differ there, uh, but but I think that the optics are much better with a rigid scope. Now that's not to say that the flexible scopes are not good because they are definitely good. They're a huge improvement over the old fiber optic scopes uh, that we used, you know, er- early on. Um, but you know, flexible scopes are best if I'm looking at the you know the kind of the big picture. If I'm looking for any motion abnormalities, if I'm looking at the airway, the rigid scopes. If I can do a rigid scope for a you know a patient that I'm concerned about true vocal fold anatomy, um, then I would prefer to do that. Now, patient tolerance is the last you know determining factor. And you know, there are just a lot of people that just can't tolerate a transoral exam, and uh, so the flexible scopes are are not a bad second second choice uh, for those people. You mentioned evaluating the mucosal wave during stroboscopy. Can you define that and tell us exactly what we should be looking for? So, mucosal wave has to do with the the, the traveling wave that occurs relative to you know the, the lamina propria of the vocal fold over the muscle the thyroretinoid or the vocalis muscle and you know you can't really understand that until you understand the three-dimensional anatomy of the the vocal fold and you know you hear laryngologists we use the term vocal fold rather than vocal cord because you know again it implies that it truly is a fold as opposed to a band of tissue uh, that might vibrate Um, but mucosal wave is where you know you get that uh, mucosal cover which you know the epithelium and the superficial layers of the lamina propria will slide over the deeper layers of the lamina propria and the muscle. 
And you know, we use the term glottal cycle to define that mucosal vibration. And in discussing the glottal cycle, again, if you look at it kind of in a coronal plane, if we were able to see vibration in a coronal plane, um, unfortunately we can't, but, it, but if, you, if you could, thinking three-dimensionally, in the glottal cycle, you're going to have a, a closed phase, and that can either be when the lower lip touches, which is the inferior margin of the, of the true vocal fold, and then you're going to, or when the upper lip touches, which is the, you know, the superior um, aspect of it. Uh, the open phase is when, you know, the, the two edges are not actually touching while they're in an adducted position vibrating. So if I see a patient, for instance, if I look at the strobe exam, and I see a lesion on the lower lip, you know, on one, and it's usually unilateral, you can almost guess, and you can, you know, I'll ask the patient, I'll say, you know what, do you tend to drive your chest voice higher than you should before flipping into your head voice? Um, because that will increase the glottal pressure on that lower lip area. And, you know, usually there'll be this, this sign of like, oh, you're right, how did you know I do that? Um, because most people, especially the, the non- trained singers, you know, a lot of these country singers, they don't like their head voice because it's a less powerful voice. And so they will drive their chest voice high. And so that's something that we want to help them to recognize that they are causing surface damage uh, to the vocal folds by using that voice technique. Next, we usually go into pathophysiology, but since we're talking about multiple etiologies, I figured we could go through each one systematically for some of the most common diagnoses. These include vocal fold granulomas, polyps, cysts, nodules, hemorrhage, and muscle tension dysphonia. We can start with vocal fold polyps first. Can you tell us a little bit about these? Yeah, so the nomenclature of these lesions uh, is, it's not controversial, so to speak, but it's it's um, highly varied, shall we say. And, and I think the term polyp is probably the most variably used term to describe these you know, phonotraumatic lesions. Um, and, and some people don't like to use the term polyp. Some people have, have uh, come up with terms, you know, fibrous mass, uh, pseudocyst, uh, uh, podule. I mean, there are various things that, that people have used. I, I tend to use the term polyp, but I usually will use a clarifying term along with it. So, for instance, um, you know, a person who comes in and they have a blood vessel associated with it, and you'll see a vascular change to it. You know, that's a vascular polyp. Um, and oftentimes you can actually see the feeding vessel that goes into that polyp. Uh, I've had patients where I've actually followed the evolution of a prominent blood vessel you know, where it tends to form maybe a little ectatic lesion on the edge. And then over time, uh, because they're not compliant, for instance, with, with uh, their behavioral changes, you know, you'll see it all of a sudden, you know, turn into a true polyp with, with blood vessels uh, associated with it. Probably more commonly, we see these translucent polyps that almost look like little blisters on the edge. And and those are the ones that are, have, have been termed fibrous masses by, by some laryngologist. Um, but again, I think it's the descriptor that's more important than the label. Unfortunately, you know, the ICD-10 uh, codes drive us to naming these things uh, lesions that they're not really. But, you know, you have to pick something, and, and you, want, you don't want to pick a nonspecific term if you can help it. Um, but the, the, the fibrous mass lesions are the ones, you know, the translucent ones, are the ones that I think more likely are going to respond to therapy and behavioral changes. The vascular polyps can respond and they can uh, get smaller with behavioral changes, um, but they are more likely to have, you know, to end up requiring surgery. Approximately what uh, percentage of vocal fold lesions do vocal fold polyps represent? You know, I think in my practice, they're, they're around, you know, 30 to 40 percent, um, you know, again, because they are varied in their appearance. Uh, so, you know, I'd, that's probably a good, a good estimate. Can you tell us a little bit more about vocal fold nodules? 
Sure. So vocal fold nodules are generally bilateral lesions that occur uh, in that in that striking zone. And you know, interestingly, really all of the phonotraumatic lesions uh, that you mentioned, they all really occur in the same location on on the membranous vocal folds. And you know, if you want to be you know to kind of be specific, it's usually the junction of the anterior and middle thirds of the membranous vocal folds. Um, so nodules are, you know, I use the term callus with the patients, um, but you know, again, remember it's not the epithelium that's that's abnormal. But but that to me kind of you know helps the person to understand you know what what I'm actually talking about. So um, you know, the idea is that you know if you've got too much friction in this one area and you're not protecting it, then you get a little focused um, inflammatory response. And it turns, you know, for whatever reason, and we don't know why, um, somebody might develop nodules as opposed to a polyp uh, or cyst, um, but you get a thickening of the basement membrane zone. You know, some of the work uh, that Mark Corey did years ago, uh, where he actually looked immunohistochemically um, at these various lesions um, showed that nodules were just thickening at the basement membrane. And, you know, the good news is, is that for those particular lesions, um, they generally will go away if you change or alter the offending behavior, just like a callus would. Uh, so, so that's kind of how I use, uh, you know, the analogy to, to help our patients understand. Our third diagnosis is vocal fold hemorrhage. Can you tell us a little bit about this? So vocal fold hemorrhage or just bleed, which is what your patients will come in, I will tell you, you know, that is one of the most uh, fearful diagnoses for a singer to hear. You know, they'll come in and they'll say, oh, please, please tell me I don't have a bleed um, in, in or on, you know, my vocal cord, um, so to speak. Uh you know, they probably occur more often than we see. Um, you know, anybody that has used their voice uh, professionally for a long, long time, especially if they haven't had a good voice training, you know, they're gonna they're going to put stress and strain, you know, on the mucosa. And you know, we we will see we will see a lot of neovascularization. You know, when when you do an exam and you start seeing the blood vessels, these these tiny little uh, curly Q blood vessels that travel across the the uh, surface of the vocal fold, heading to that that medial vibrating edge. You know, that's neovascularization. That is not normal. Uh, you know, blood vessel uh, appearance, um, and and again, kind of goes back to our discussion about vascular polyps. That is probably the etiology of a lot of the vascular polyps that we see. But these new blood vessels are fragile. You know, they're they're not as hardy. Uh, they don't have the same structure as uh, you know those we were born with, so to speak. Um, and they're you know, if they have a little micro rupture or uh, hair, usually it's within the mucosa as opposed to on the surface, you're going to see blood tracking within the superficial layer of the lamina propria. And, uh, you know, that's a frightening thing for a singer to see. Um, you know, I th- the good news is, is the majority of hemorrhages resolve. Um, you know, we don't see probably a good percentage of these hemorrhages. They probably occur and we never know it. And, you know, in most cases, uh, it probably doesn't have any permanent uh, issues. But, you know, if you see one, you do worry about the inflammatory response associated with the bleed. And so, you know, we generally will put people on some degree of voice rest for a period of time until that hemorrhage has resolved just to reduce the trauma while they're in an inflammatory phase. Can you describe a little bit about how these patients present and how you determine how long they may need voice rest? So the ones that actually present are the ones that generally will have noticed a, a relatively sudden change in their voice. You know, you, you you might see a singer who comes in and says, "Gosh, you know, I was I was in a in a set last night and I was doing great, and all of a sudden, you know, in the middle of the set, I felt a change in my voice." 
And, you know, I tried to do, you know, some throat clearing, I drank water, and it just wasn't there. And, you know, oftentimes, though, the, the, the singer will tell you they felt something, and then they can feel a change in their voice. But yet you ask somebody in the audience, and they may not have noticed that same change, but, but the singer knows it. And so, you know, that, that might be an indication that they've had, had a hemorrhage. Um, we've had some where they made it through the show, and they said that they, everything was fine, but they wake up the next morning and they don't have a voice. Uh, so it can be variable. We've seen people who come in and, you know, even just for routine follow-up, you know, we've just been following their, you know, their exam over time. And they come in and you look, you look at their, their vocal folds, you'll see that typical yellowish discoloration on the affected side. And, you know, you say, well, anything happened? Did you notice any issue with your voice, you know, several days ago? And, you know, oftentimes they can tell us something, but sometimes they're like, no, I haven't noticed any problem uh, with my voice. And uh, so, you know, again, it's hard to tell somebody to, to shut down uh, when the bleed happened days ago or even a week or more ago. Now, if I see a patient coming in and they clearly have had an acute hemorrhage, you know, something within the last 24 hours or so, uh, then I do feel, you know, an obligation to shut that person down. And so our general recommendation is complete voice rest, so speaking voice and singing voice, you know, generally for a week. Um, and that's, you know, during the time that you're going to see the blood uh, resolve and, you know, and, and be resorbed. Some of that is related, you know, to your own clinic time. But, but I think a week kind of matches up well, you know, with the resolution of the hemorrhage. You certainly don't want to risk having it re-bleed during that time and increase the inflammatory response. Some people will, will add steroids during that time. Um, I don't think there's any direct evidence. Uh, I think sometimes the steroid is, is, is just kind of, a, um, it may make the physician feel better, and it may make the singer feel better. But, you know, there is also some, some concern that steroids may actually delay the healing and, and actually may potentiate um, a bleed. Uh, so, you know, my own practice, I generally don't use steroids unless I see some really significant surrounding inflammation. But I'll bring the patient back, usually at that one week or so mark, and just see, you know, how it's doing. Is it resolving? Of course, at that time, you also have to be wary that, you know, if it happens once, it can happen again. So you look to see if there's an obvious ectatic vessel that might be the culprit. You know, but, but a lot of pa patients may have a single bleed and never bleed again. So I don't think a single bleed is an indication to take them to the operating room. Repetitive bleeds, uh, definitely. Um, but, you know, I will tell them if they are a singer, I would not want them going back to performing within that one week. Um, generally, I would give them two to three weeks and, you know, not, not let them go until you see them and it looks pretty much close to normal. Can you tell us a little bit about vocal fold cysts? Yes. Yeah, so vocal fold cysts, um, you know, again, that's probably more accurately my pee in a pod uh, description. Um, and generally with cysts, you know, they appear deeper. I mean, they, they, when you look at them, you're not seeing them generally uh, extend from the medial edge. You're seeing them uh, within the substance, you know, when you look on stroboscopy. Cysts are more likely to alter mucosal wave, you know, so you'll look down and if there's, if you actually see, because generally you can potentially see the cyst outline uh, within the substance of the vocal fold. And, and depending on its size and how long it's been there, you know, the mucosal wave will just be absent at that location. And that sometimes can actually be a hint if you're not seeing the outline of the cyst, uh, but you see this little little focal area of adynamic um, vibration, you know, it might tell you that there's something under the surface there in the SLP. But again, they occur within the superficial lamina propria. As far as the, you know, how does a cyst form and why does it form? You know, that's, that's a, a, it's an area of study, um, you know, it's thought possibly that someone might have a sulcus there, 
and you get a little um, uh, involuted, you know, mucosal cover or epithelium, and it gets trapped. And just over time, it just starts developing, you know, the desquamated um, debris in there. It's almost like, you know, we've used the term, you know, the vocafold cholesteatoma. Um, so, so that is one school of thought. Um, another school of thought is that, you know, you just get a little superficial tear uh, in the mucosal cover, and that causes some entrapment of debris in there. Um, there are little glands that are infraglottic. You know, there are, there are not any uh, glands within, you know, the vibrating portion, but, you know, possibly due to um, constant trauma, uh, you can have one of those glands kind of start, start making its way um, because of injury and inflammation into that area. Uh, but the bottom line with a cyst, uh, if you are, you know, you're, you're less likely to avoid surgery. Now, it's, again, it never say never, um, because I've had uh, some, you know, prominent singers who come in, and you, there is a big cyst there, and they're not ready for surgery, you know, the timing is not right, or and, and they are able to perform with that, that cyst present. Um, and I've seen them, you know, in follow-up, and there's no indication. You know, maybe the cyst decompresses, the capsule becomes kind of fibrotic, and never causes a problem again. Uh, but, you know, if you're going to look at the, the percentage of lesions requiring surgery, cysts are, are more likely than not um, to require surgery. And you need to make sure you're removing the capsule when you address cysts. So next, we'll discuss uh, vocal process granulomas. Can you tell us a little bit about these? So vocal process granulomas probably aren't considered a phonotraumatic lesion, although I guess in some cases they are, um, but it's usually more related to speaking voice uh, trauma. Um, and again, you know, vocal process granulomas, I want to differentiate that from intubation granulomas because the pathophysiology is, is very different. Um, but these spontaneous, you know, non, non-direct trauma-related granulomas um, are more than likely associated with some superficial trauma, you know, to the vocal process uh, mucosa, where you might get a little perichondritis with it. And it's essentially an ulcer that has an inflammatory reaction, and they can vary from, you know, a little flat ulceration to a very large uh, granuloma. Sometimes you'll even see a cup and saucer appearance where, you know, the, the contralateral vocal process will actually be seen to fit into the, you know, the cup shape of the granuloma on the ipsilateral side. Uh, but, the, but these generally are not on the membranous vocal fold, and a lot of people with granulomas will not even report a voice change. You know, if they do have a voice change, often it's the voice change that led to the granuloma as opposed to the granuloma leading to the voice change. Are there any other disease processes that are associated with these granulomas? So if you, you know, look in the literature, you're going to see reflux associated a lot of the time. Uh, and, you know, I, I think there's no doubt that if someone does have uh, acid uh, or non-acid uh, abnormally coming up into the uh, hypopharynx and in the laryngeal area, then it absolutely can be an aggravator and a potentiator of granulomas. Um, but I think, you know, the... It, Again, if you look at the literature, it, it, is, it is a little bit disparate as far as, you know, good, good science that says, yes, you know, granulomas are due to reflux. They may be associated with reflux, but certainly uh, I think most laryngologists have seen patients uh, who've had negative pH probe testing, you know, negative uh, GI evaluation across the board, negative impedance. Um, and, and also they get better without addressing any type of uh, reflux treatment. Um, you know, if you want to treat empirically, I think there's little harm, uh, but I don't think that reflux, in my opinion, is the primary factor associated with it. So finally, can you tell us about muscle tension dysphonia and how this affects professional singers? So muscle tension dysphonia is, is one of the most common issues that we see, uh, not only in professional singers, but, but really in, in any of our voice patients. 
Um, I think it's uh, it's probably underdiagnosed uh, in the general otolaryngology um, community. Um, but, you know, I think you have to think about MTD as either primary or secondary. Um, pr- primary MTD, you know, can occur with a lesion or with uh, an anatomical abnormality of the vocal folds or without an anatomical abnormality. Um, you know, the vocal fry that, that, that I demonstrated earlier, you know, that's essentially a version of, of MTD. And oftentimes, you know, you, you, you'll hear that right away. And, you know, you'll hear it with the speaking voice, generally speaking. Uh, and, you know, you may have a person that comes in and they've done, you know, they're classically trained in their singing voice. They have a voice coach and they have, you know, they do everything well with their singing voice. And yet when they start using the voice that they use 95% of the time, you know, they're, they're using, they're using uh, bad behaviors. You know, they're, they're engaging the strap muscles. They're engaging the tongue base. You know, even the palate can have tension. So, you know, you want to make sure that, that you're examining the neck, examining the, the posterior neck, the trapezius muscles, because, again, oftentimes that's where the tension is originating, and it's just carrying over, you know, to the, to the, the paralaryngeal uh, muscles. Um, we, have a, we have a great relationship with our physical therapist uh, at Vanderbilt and, and even actually in the surrounding communities. Um, we, we send uh, patients to physical therapy, I mean, honestly, several times a day. And that has been a game changer, especially for our professional voice population. Um, the ones who are musicians where they're playing an instrument, they're playing a guitar, or they're playing, you know, a keyboard where, you know, they're carrying a lot of upper body tension uh, during, during, those, uh, during those times. Um, so, you know, secondary MTD... Uh, is related to potentially a lesion, a phonotraumatic lesion. Uh, they're trying to overcompensate, you know, for the fact that their, you know, vibration is affected by by a, the nodules or a polyp, et cetera. Um, but, but regardless of the type of MTD, you know, I want to address that before I do anything or think about anything surgically. So, you know, I'm probably referring to physical therapy as often as I'm referring to our speech pathologist. So those are some of the more specific diagnoses found in professional singers. But what are some of the other diagnoses that remain on our differential for dysphonia? So there are definitely, that's a long list. Um, and, and again, I think it's good to think about uh, again, whether it's dysphonia that's directly due to a change or alteration in laryngeal mechanics, you know, vocal fold abnormalities uh, versus other, you know, other uh, anatomic areas. Um, you know, if it's affecting the vocal folds themselves, you know, we don't see infectious laryngitis a lot, uh, but it's certainly something to think about. Um, we do see inflammatory laryngitis that's non-infectious. Um, we see, you know, autoimmune disorders can actually affect the vocal folds themselves. It can, actually, it can affect the joints um, of the vocal folds. You know, you could go through your typical differential, you know, for any, any set of symptoms, but, um, you know, there's neurologic abnormalities, uh, paralysis, paresis, um, presbyphonia, you know, if you think about the age of a patient, you know, a vocal fold atrophy. Um, you know, we talked earlier about uh, spasmodic dysphonia and tremor um, as, as other neurologic disorders. Um, so, you know, again, I think it's nice to think about it as, as primary laryngeal versus non-laryngeal, where, the, where the, the larynx is kind of the innocent bystander from some other you know, some other um, underlying diagnosis. So we already talked a little bit about workup, including a full head and neck exam and a nasopharyngeal examination. Are there any other um, aspects of the workup that you might consider for these patients? So I think um, for any voice practice, you know, anyone that that sees patients uh, with voice abnormalities, you have to have partnership with speech-language pathology. And, you know, we, we are very fortunate in our, that ours are in-house, um, but you don't have to have them in-house. 
Uh, you can partner with someone, you know, in your community. Uh, but, but I think, you know, you really cannot take care of voice patients without that, without that added partnership. Um, they not only help you with perceptual analysis uh, of, of the patients, um, but obviously they help with the treatment of the behavioral aspects um, as an underlying cause. Um, acoustic analysis is probably not as, as helpful. We mentioned earlier about the lack of good objective measures of voice. Uh, depending on the abnormality, I mean, there's certainly some, you know, other other things that we have in our toolkit, you know, laryngeal EMG, for instance, for any kind of neurologic uh, voice disorder, you know, but even that is probably, you know, t in, in my mind, I always ask, you know, what is this test going to to impact in my decision making? You know, is it going to alter, you know, the, the options I have for management? And, and if it, if it, possibly can alter it, then I think it's it's indicated. If not, then, you know, I, I would um, just be more cost effective and, and save the patient uh, the aggravation. Is there any role for imaging in these patients? Not generally. Um, I think, you know, again, if there's if there's any type of airway uh, concern, I mean, I think it's 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 also uh I think standard of care, if you have someone with a neurologic, you know, if you have a paralysis, paresis, and you don't have an obvious cause, um, then yes, I think imaging is required. Uh, when you're talking, you know, any kind of neoplastic process, you know, cancer, um, I think a lot of people now are not even getting imaging for, you know, T1 uh, vocal fold cancers. Um, so, so probably not doing that a lot. So next we'll talk about treatment options. What are the treatment options in general for dysphonic patients? So, uh, it, of course, it depends on the, on the diagnosis and, you know, what, what you see on, on your exam and, and what you hear. But, you know, the biggest thing that, that I think drives my treatment recommendations is individual patient quality of life. And I may have a patient coming in uh, or I may have 10 patients come in with the exact same objective presentation, but yet they all have different needs with their voices. And so treatment recommendations might differ uh, from the professional voice person uh, to the person who lives by themselves, has a, has a, a job that doesn't require their voice, um, and, you know, who's just, you know, it's, it, they would rather just know that they don't have cancer uh, and, not, and not go forward with any other treatment. So, you know, quality of life is number one. And, and again, I think that's where the art of medicine comes in. You have to know your patients and establish that, that uh, relationship. So generally speaking, though, you know, when I, when I am talking about options, you know, there's just observation. You don't have to do anything. I mean, you, you may have a, a voice user and you see a polyp or nodules. And again, they, they're like, my voice does everything I need it to do. So we'll just observe it. You know, even some professional singers have a visible phonotraumatic lesion, but yet because they have trained themselves and have had good behavioral modifications, their voices are as good as they've been with that lesion. So I think that's another uh, good counseling point uh, for your patients um, to know. Uh, the no risk, you know, other, you know, I'll kind of build it up going from, from uh, the observation to no risk proactive interventions, uh, voice therapy. You know, voice therapy with a speech language pathologist uh, who hopefully has done some postgraduate work in, in voice. Uh, to me, I think that's imperative. I mentioned earlier about having that partnership. Um, so voice therapy is no risk. Now, trying to convince a patient that voice therapy is going to be beneficial is sometimes challenging, and that's where that relationship building comes into play. And I also think that's where, you know, even if you're not in an academic institution, you have to educate your patients. Tell them why they had developed this, this lesion or, you know, tell them why their voice is the way it is. And as long as they understand it, then they are more likely to agree to do 
uh, you know, something that you recommend, such as voice therapy. Um, medical management for any associated uh, underlying issues. You have to be careful about allergy medicine if you think allergies are playing a role. Uh, some of the allergy medicines can actually be counterproductive uh, to vocal health, you know, with their drying effects. Um, a lot of the, the allergy practices love the antihistamine decongestant combos, and I try to, to have patients not go that route. Uh, I try to have them, if they need that antihistamine, take the antihistamine without the decongestant, but if they need the decongestant, they can take that as a separate pill. Uh, the nasal steroid sprays, big fan of those. Uh, you know, I don't have any problem with a professional voice user using, you know, fluticasone or equivalent uh, nasal steroid sprays, especially if it allows them to get off some of the drying medications. And then, of course, we're surgeons. So uh, surgical excision, you know, is an option if the, you get to the point uh, where you know, the patient's been compliant, and they are not able to perform to the level that they need to perform. And, you know, that is a discussion. Um, and, and again, it, it, it is patient, patient to patient uh, variable. Um, but, you know, surgical excision is designed to try to get them back to their good vocal health. And so, you know, if they're there with a lesion, then avoid the risk of surgery. Uh, but, you know, using techniques such as the microflap techniques, you know, are, are, have really been shown to, to provide uh, either recovery or, or um, maintain vocal fold vibration. So, um, you know, surgery is, is, is the right option in, in a good number of these patients. So before we get into the details of surgical interventions, can you tell us a little bit more detail about what voice therapy entails? So there are different types of voice therapy. And, you know, I, I try not to, to try to influence them too much because just like as a surgeon, you know, I, I may do something a little bit differently than my colleagues um, who, who may have even trained uh, here at Vanderbilt with uh, with us, um, so you know you, you do what works best in your hands, and so uh, the speech language pathologist hopefully has their their set of tools in the toolbox, and you know that's also key because some patients may respond to one type of voice therapy and not another. I've actually had had patients who who have had to switch speech pathologist because there was not that good connection there. Um, and, and so, you know, it, the whole idea is to help the patient understand the behaviors that led to their current problem. And uh, so that's, that's really the importance there. So we discussed a little bit already about when we decide to operate on patients. If we do decide to operate, what techniques do you use for treatment of these lesions? So for for these phonotraumatic lesions, and uh, I'm I'm going to specifically say polyps and cysts, uh, we don't generally need to operate on nodules, um, which are the typically the bilateral symmetrical lesions, because they respond generally to to therapy and behavioral modification. Uh, but for cysts and polyps, uh, these are lesions within the superficial layer of the lamina propria they generally, the abnormality is generally not involving the epithelial layer or the mucosal cover. So your surgery should therefore be aimed at that, that layer uh, of the vocal fold. And as I explain it to my patients, I think of it, you know, I try to compare it to a pea in a pod concept that I want to open up the pod, uh, take out the pea, and then close the pod. Uh, so that all we're left with is an incision that has to heal. Uh, so, you know, unlike that bad word um, that should be banned from the laryngology vocabulary, which is stripping. Um, now, having said that, you know, some of these lesions, especially some of the polyps, for instance, uh, can be quite large, and the overlying mucosal cover can be thin. It can be um, just just a, a non-functional area. So, you know, in order to get that closure uh, along the, the vibrating edge, 
you often do have to remove some of some of the epithelial layers or the mucosal cover. Um, but you do that in a way so that, you know, once you excise that, you again want to end up with that single incision with the edges co-opted. If you can have the incision away from that medial edge, that's ideal. Um, you know, the so-called, you know, medial microflap approach versus the lateral microflap approach. I think the bottom line is plan your incision so that, so that you're thinking that single uh, incision line that has to heal. For cysts, I generally make my incisions a little bit more laterally because uh, it, it allows me to have a better, a better retraction within that pea in a pod, so to speak. Um, but uh, for polyps, if you think you're going to have to remove some of the mucosal cover, you know, you need to plan your incision, your initial incision, uh, so that um, the edges do co-apt well. So there's also a question of, you know, whether or not steroids are beneficial uh, with this type of surgery. Um, some people historically have used uh, just steroid to layer into you know, the microflap, you know, into your incision um, area. Uh, some people actually you are using steroids now uh, to inject even without the with, even without the excision part of it. Um, you know, the, the, and that is being done both in the office and in the operating room, where you inject the steroid uh, directly into the lesion, um, which is, is essentially going into the to the uh, SLP, uh, and and that is you know that is certainly an option. I don't think there's enough experience with that approach to say whether it's efficacious um, or if it's going to replace surgery. Um, my my guess is is that it's that it works in some people, uh, but not in everyone. So let's discuss outcomes and expectations. If we proceed with surgery, how do you generally counsel patients on the complications of surgery and what to expect postoperatively? So as far as risks go, there are risks of the actual procedure it's, you know, itself, the physical, you know, doing the laryngoscopy. And, and uh, you know, this is the typical, you know, we're using a metal instrument that is going into the mouth. Um, you have to get the tongue out of the way in order to get that line of sight view uh, to, to the, the vocal folds. And so any of the structures that are between the mouth and the vocal folds are at risk for injury. So we talk about, you know, injury or laceration of the lips, uh, tooth injury, you know, cracked tooth, loose tooth, chipped tooth. Um, of course, our anesthesia colleagues are usually going to be telling them the same thing. Um, I, I really do emphasize the tongue because if you don't tell them about the tongue, I've had more patients come back complaining about their tongue than anything else. And so I always tell them that, you know, the tongue is, takes up a lot of space in the mouth and we have to get it out of the way. And you know, generally with laryngoscopy, we're going down the right side of the tongue, not always, but I will tell them, you know, do not be surprised if after you wake up, the side of your tongue, usually the right side, uh, might, it might be painful, it might feel numb, uh, they might feel, uh, you know, that their sense of taste is altered on that side. Um, that can last a short time, a day or two, but I actually have seen it last for several weeks. There are even reports in the literature that, that it has lasted much longer than that, months and months. Um, Fortunately, I have not seen that happen. But, but you know, again, I think it's good to counsel the patients that that, that can occur. Um, so that's just, you know, you know, just us putting our instruments uh, in the mouth. Um, for the actual surgery itself on the vocal folds, you know, the big fear of any singer is scar. And, you know, so I get that out, you know, right at the beginning. And so, you know, I tell every patient... I'm going to make an incision on your vocal fold. It has to heal, and all incisions heal by forming scar. The big question, though, is how much scar, and what is the what is the characteristic of that scar? And you know, there are certainly patient variables that will impact that. Some that we're not even aware of. Um, so, so we focus on that term a lot. Um, but what I do say is that the techniques that we use with the microflap technique, 
they are designed and have been shown to have the least risk of scar formation. Doesn't eliminate it, um, but you know, ideally it's gonna be a minimal scar that does not affect vibration. Uh, but you know, again, that is a risk. If it, develop, if it heals by forming a very stiff, firm scar, uh, then it is gonna affect uh, vibration and can cause a permanent effect on the voice. What do you generally recommend postoperatively for microflaps? So uh, post-op, um, I, I don't put them on any dietary restrictions generally. So I let them eat or drink anything that they can tolerate. Although, you know, most patients will, will start with a soft diet just because of, you know, the, the mouth and throat discomfort. Uh, the, the, the fortunate thing, and I tell patients this, the vocal folds themselves really don't have a lot of pain sensation. Um, so any, any pain medication that is needed is generally to address, you know, the tongue and, and those surrounding areas. But, I, you know, most patients don't need prescription pain medicine. So that's, uh, that's one thing. I don't generally use antibiotics. Um, I don't use them, you know, preoperatively or postoperatively. Uh, you know, probably the biggest question is voice rest. And you know that is uh, that's that's an area that's generated a lot of discussion in laryngology. It's generated some research, um, some of that which was done by my former colleague, Dr. Bernie Rousseau, uh, who's who's now up at Pittsburgh. But again, the idea with voice rest is is to you know do whatever it takes to optimize healing. You know we cannot put the vocal folds at complete rest. You know, they are constantly moving. If you just put a scope and you just sit at, you know, a transnasal scope and you just watch the larynx, you know, with someone just sitting there breathing, those vocal folds are always moving. And every time you swallow, every time you even gently throat clear, you're going to get contact uh, with those vocal folds. So voice rest, you know, the idea there is just, just to try to eliminate you know, the, the voluntary voice use as much as possible. Um, I do tell my patients, I put them on, you know, complete voice rest, speaking voice rest, usually ends up being about five or six days because I do see them back in clinic the following week just to make sure that everything is healing as it should be. Most people are pretty compliant um, with that recommendation. And again, if you look at some of the, the science uh, related to, to healing of the vocal folds, you know, the incision is generally closed within two to three days. And you certainly don't want vibration to occur to lift that incision or, or make that incision wider than it needs to be. But, you know, that same, that same research shows that there are some positive healing factors uh, that come into play with a little bit of movement. You know, our orthopedic colleagues recognized that, you know, years ago uh, as they have changed their post-op recommendations for hip surgery, knee surgery, et cetera. So some movement is good, uh, but I do think that movement, enough of that movement occurs with just nonverbal um, laryngeal function. Um, so generally that's, uh, you know, my recommendation. And then any follow-up that's done after that week uh, is, is patient uh, dependent. I'd like to get them back plugged in to voice therapy as soon as I feel like the healing um, is, is adequate. And most of the time that's within, you know, two to four weeks of the surgery. For a performer, you know, you have a singer who's, you know, they're, they're normally either going to go on tour or they're going to be, you know, just doing even local sets. I tell them, don't schedule anything that's really important for about three months. Now, in my mind, I know it might be sooner than that that they're ready to go, uh, but at least you're not having to keep push, you know, you're not pushing back uh, you know, scheduled shows or, or tours. Um, if, you know, they're very happy to get started sooner, but they're not happy if they have to postpone things even further than they planned. So three months is kind of my, my general time. What is the risk of recurrence of these lesions for patients um, who either undergo vo voice therapy or surgery or both? You know, the recurrence rate, fortunately, is quite small. I think by the time that you get to the surgery recommendation, 
uh, I think patients understand. They understand how they got to that point. And, you know, most of them now, uh, I think singers and performers are much more educated now than they used to be. Uh, I think that um, management and labels are more understanding of the fact that, you know, this should be a long, long-term commitment. And, you know, in years past, you know, if you heard that a, that a singer had nodules, oh my gosh, that might be a death knell for their career. And they didn't want anyone to know that they had voice problems. And, you know, with some of the, the very well-known prominent singers in the last decade who have come out and, and you know, said, yes, I, I had voice problems. I had to have voice, you know, surgery. Um, it happens. You know, football players end up having knee injuries. Singers end up having vocal fold problems and occasionally need to have surgery or at least occasionally need to come off tour. Um, so, you know, I think people are are much more educated and they're much more willing to think long term than they are short term. Great. Thank you, Dr. Garrett. At this point, I'll go ahead with a summary of our discussion. Professional singers present with specific career demands that impact health decision-making. These factors include tour schedules, involvement of voice coaches, and managing short- and long-term outcomes. Along with being at risk for normal pathologies, professional singers are at higher risk for voice overuse and misuse. Developing problems with dysphonia can not only be related to their singing voice, but also their speaking voice and demands outside of their professional career. There are several vocal grading systems. However, there's no uh, well-accepted objective measurements. Most commonly, professional singers with dysphonia present with muscle tension dysphonia, vocal fold nodules, or vocal fold polyps. Less commonly, they may present with vocal fold granulomas, vocal fold hemorrhage, or vocal fold cysts. This is all in addition to the long list of diagnoses for dysphonia in non-singers, including infection, malignancy, vocal fold, paresis, or paralysis, and Ranke's edema, to name a few. Treatment of dysphonia in the professional singer is tailored to the diagnosis, but voice therapy almost always offers some benefit, even preoperatively. In the case of vocal fold polyps or cysts that persist beyond voice therapy, surgical excision with a microflac technique may be beneficial. Long-term outcomes for treating dysphonia in professional singers is generally positive, but heavily depends on patient participation with therapy. Thank you, Dr. Garrett, for reviewing professional voice with us. Is there anything else you would like to add? No, Ashley, I think you, you've covered it well, and this has uh, been very enjoyable. Thank you for having me. It's now time to bring this episode to a close, but before we do, I'll go through some questions. As always, I'll ask a question, wait a few seconds so you can think of an answer on your own, and then I'll give the answer. First question, what are some of the exacerbating factors that might impact voice quality? Some of the exacerbating factors that can impact voice quality include voice overuse, misuse, dehydration, caffeine or alcohol intake, smoking, GERD, medications such as inhaled steroids and warfarin to name a few. Second question, what are some aspects of voice quality that we can evaluate subjectively in the clinic? Some of the subjective voice qualities that we can evaluate in clinic include grade, roughness, breathiness, asthenia, strain, diplophonia, tremor, strider, and vocal fry, to name a few. Third question, what data does rigid stroboscopy offer that a normal, flexible, non-stroboscopic examination does not? Rigid stroboscopy utilizes a strobe light to allow for examination of vocal fold vibration and closure, essentially in slow motion. As a result, the mucosal wave and fine details of vocal fold motion are more easily examined for abnormalities. A flexible fiber optic examination without strobe light can reveal disorders of vocal fold movement, the greater airway, or vocal fold lesions, 
but typically does not pick up on the mucosal wave abnormalities which can be critical in professional singers. Last question. Describe the microflap technique for removing vocal fold polyps. The microflap technique was designed to minimize postoperative vocal fold scarring and associated dysphonia. Direct laryngoscopy exposes the true vocal folds and the remainder of the larynx under microscopy. The epithelial layer overlying the lesion is sharply elevated in a flap configuration and reflected to reveal the lesion. The lesion is then directly excised from the superficial laminate propria layer. Once hemostasis is achieved, the epithelial layer is reflected back into position. Preservation of the epithelial layer is thought to better preserve the mucosal wave, resulting in improved voice postoperatively. A microflap excision can be completed in conjunction with a direct steroid injection into the vocal fold at the time of surgery. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on ENT in a Nutshell.